So joining our series on this episode is Lee Jasper, serial entrepreneur and CEO of Samuel Ventures. Lee co-founded construction software and collaboration platform Aconex over the course of 18 years before selling the business to Oracle in a $1.6 billion transaction in 2017. Since that time, he's been an active investor and holds a number of board roles, including with Seek, Launch Victoria, Salter Properties, Second Quarter Ventures and the Burnett Institute. Lee, pleasure having you as a guest on our program. We'll get to your background shortly, but before we do, I'd be interested to hear about Samuel Ventures and, and what you're seeing across the business at the moment. Hey, well, great to be with you, Rob. And uh, yes, Annual Ventures is effectively our investment arm. So uh, with the sale of Aconex, we've uh, done what a lot of entrepreneurs have done over the years, is take some of those funds and reinvest them back into the industry, into technology. Uh, so our focus is really investing into Australian technology businesses, high growth businesses, uh, particularly around um, B2B SaaS. So business to business software as a service where uh, tools are effectively automating what are often quite boring processes that people don't want to do. Uh, a bit like Aconex, we automated a lot of construction and streamlined that construction process. Uh, so looking for similar types of businesses that are automating those processes. And uh, yeah, in, in industries that often have network effects too, again, taking the learnings from Aconex and applying that to other, other businesses. Reflecting on current market conditions, where are you seeing opportunity to invest at the moment? Yeah, I think it's uh, on that automation theme. So uh, what's happening increasingly is uh, your tools, software and service tools are bringing companies together um, across the supply chain uh, into common platforms, uh, which is something that you couldn't do, well, you couldn't do it pre-internet, you really couldn't even do it five, ten years ago. You needed the sp a, a speed of the internet and also the ability to adopt those tools. Um, so, uh, so really like those types of businesses, again, with strong network effects, you know, we're seeing a lot of, uh, a lot of companies taking what might have been social or you know, consumer-based products and taking those across or the, the learnings from those products across into, uh, into the B2B space. I want to walk you through a few recent investments you've made, including Estimate One, Circle In and Vendor Panel. Talk to me about each of those businesses, if you could, and what made them an attractive investment proposition for you. Starting with Estimate One, which I know quite well, that was a, a business, always a business in the construction technology space space um, during our time at Aconex. Uh, really great business for connecting again the supply chain, so connecting all of the subcontractors to the head contractors. Really strong market position uh, and great network effects within that business. And uh, that business has, uh, has done really well in Australia, is now looking to expand internationally. So uh, happy to be a part of that, that business and help them help them grow. Uh, Circle In is, uh, again, business to business, but a different problem, uh, this time around people uh, and people that are uh, increasingly uh, working parents, uh, you know, people who are working, uh, you know, now going working from home a lot, of course, but how people balance up their work and their home life. Uh, so providing tools to enable that, particularly for larger corporates, but that's also come down into the mid-market space. And um, again, great founders building a great business. Uh, and then the last one was, uh, that you mentioned was Vendor Panel. As I mentioned before, it's almost in a sense taking something which people don't like doing, which is procurement, um, and just streamlining that and making it super easy. Uh, again, very strong network effects in that business, a great market position in Australia, uh, and another Australian business looking to expand internationally. Now, in an article this time last year, you warned that there was a risk of tech jobs fleeing overseas. Has that occurred to the extent that you thought it would have 12 months ago? I think quite a few things have changed. Firstly, we've had our borders closed, so if you wanted to employ anybody in tech, it's pretty damn hard to get them into the country. Um, so that's, uh, that hasn't helped. Uh, I think the other thing is with the work from home, which is really work from anywhere, you don't need to be, you know, if it's an Australian business, you don't need to hire people here. So seeing Australian business are often hiring teams offshore. We did that to some degree with Aconex, uh, which couldn't get the talent locally, so we built teams in offshore locations. 
Mind you, it's also an opportunity for Australia. We, we don't need to be right next to everything. Uh, you know, that now that people can work from anywhere, Australians can also be working for international businesses based here in Australia. So you know, we haven't seen really any inflow of people over the last two years. So we'll see how it goes over the next six months as borders reopen. But I'd hope that we can you know, get great tech, tech talent into Australia because without, without that talent, I mean, sort of self-reinforcing as you get more talent in, it builds more talent and creates, uh, again, a bit of a, an ecosystem of, uh, you know, of tech of tech expertise within the country. I want to briefly explore your background. As I understand it, you grew up in Rutherglen and attended Scotch College, where fortuitously you were, went on to meet Rob Philpott, your, your business partner. Talk to me about Lee Jasper as a student, if you could. <laughs> uh, well, that was a long time ago now, of course, but uh, yeah, grew up in country Victoria, um, went off to boarding school. Uh, always, um, yeah, look, I guess I liked school, I was, you know, uh, did okay at school, but particularly liked mathematics, and that was sort of led me on to going into an engineering degree. Uh, as I started to see what engineers did, and I worked, did quite a few summer jobs, I thought, well, I don't really want to be on a, you know, in, in one example, I worked uh, with ESO uh, offshore fixing pumps, and or at least advising on how to fix the pumps, I wasn't actually physically fixing them myself, but so I thought, well, that's sort of interesting, but could I ever, you know, do something a bit broader? End up going into management consulting with McKinsey and Company. Uh, Rob, who was in the boarding house with me, and um, yeah, good to meet him. I guess in the first first few years, uh, he was a year above me at school, so we were. Yeah, he was. Uh, he used to beat me up a little bit. Let me put it that way. Uh, but then um, we, uh, yeah, we, we saw an opportunity really uh, after a couple of years at McKinsey, which was during that first wave of the first dot com boom. Uh, so 98, 99, 2000, to take some of the. Um, to really apply the internet and what the internet could do in terms of streamlining and bring, bringing businesses together uh, to construction. And he was at Multiplex at the time, so that's how the, the genesis of Aconex came about, so of how can we take the internet and business models that were uh, starting at that point and apply that to the problems that people had in managing construction projects. Following graduation, you enrolled in a Bachelor of Science, Bachelor of Engineering degree at the University of Melbourne. What, what, what appealed to you about these fields of study? I think given uh, my enjoyment of I guess, maths and science at school, I thought I'd continue that into university. Uh, didn't want to be a doctor or a lawyer or anything like that. And then also thought that an engineering degree would perhaps lend itself to going into business at some point in the future. Uh, but very quickly, as I mentioned before, I just decided I didn't really want to be an engineer once I started doing some engineering work and uh, went across into management consulting pretty quickly. So I guess that view that I could do yeah, follow uh, what I enjoyed doing, but also expand that across into the business field. Um, it's one of the things, I, actually, during university, I spoke to a counsellor about, or a career counsellor about potentially adding, I wanted to do originally engineering and, and commerce, and the, uh, the advice I said, well, you can do commerce anytime. Yeah, if you like maths, keep doing that, and took her advice, and it, actually, it ended up working out. But yeah, that's what I did at uni. I did a maths degree alongside my uh, engineering degree. And then talk us through the story of how Aconex came about in 2000, I think it was, and then the platform launched in 2001. Yeah, so good mate, Rob. Uh, we went to school together, uh, as we talked about earlier. Uh, we're still good friends through uni and started to talk about how uh, the internet could be used to streamline construction. Um, at McKinsey & Company at the time, we were doing a whole lot of work for various different businesses around what the internet was doing to their industry. So this was the newspaper industry, the uh, the media, uh, even some consumer companies, banks, you know, all these companies were trying to work out well, what does the internet mean for our business. Uh, and so we thought that there was an opportunity to use the internet to change the way construction happened um, and to really eliminate all of that hard copy information that at the time was, uh, was difficult to manage in the industry. 
And then from there, how did the business take on the next steps? As I understand it, raised about $1.8 million, mostly from friends and family, and then came another $2 million of funding about 12 or 24 months after that. Take us through that, that journey. I mean, to be honest, we were pretty lucky. I, I think in hindsight, we probably realised how lucky we were to be able to raise those funds. I mean, we just had more two guys with a business plan. Uh, we didn't have... Back then, there was no AWS, so you couldn't throw up a website. Um, it was very hard. Uh, you couldn't really show anything and have and start to get a product to market. So we had a, literally just a business plan. Black and white, I think it wasn't anything fancy, but laid out sort of our vision for what we could do in the industry. Uh, thankfully, some people thought that it might work. We had people from construction. We had some people from McKinsey. Uh, just basically put the put the tin around, put the hat around, if you like, to try and raise that money um, uh, and then started the business. So we raised that. We're, again, probably lucky to raise that money and then it got a bit harder. Um, we built the product, uh, took it out to market, but knew we needed to raise another round to take, take the business to the next level. Then September 11 happened, so everybody put their hands back in their pockets. Uh, we were, I think, only 17 or 18 people. We literally went back, we laid off six people, went back to 12. Um, it was Rob and me plus a couple of developers. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, an office manager and other people. So very small team. Um, we were able to then sort of eke out our, our funds, uh, get an, an extra three to six months of runway, and then people started to look at investing again and we were able to get a couple of million dollars, at, raise a couple of million dollars at that point. And then from there on, we started to hit a pretty, uh, well, still tough, but a pretty good growth, growth phase. But, you know, we were selling internet-based service when most people connected the internet via a dial-up modem. Mm. So, and if you were lucky, you had ADSL, and we'd sell to a construction company, and then they'd say, oh, I'll take about, Telstra takes about three, three weeks to get an ADSL line on site, and then some of our customers didn't have any computers on site, so when you're trying to sell an internet-based system when they don't have computers, it's a little tough. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, thankfully, they put them on eventually, but yeah, so it was a, but then once it started to move, it really, it really took off, and then really the growth phase for us, which was, probably the most surprising was through the mid-2000s, we had these very large projects in places like the Middle East that were struggling to manage their information flows and we had a ready-made solution they could roll out effectively immediately um, you know, with a, a few days or a week of implementation they were up and running. So uh, we did some pretty incredible projects like Dubai Metro, uh, these multi-billion dollar projects uh, all around the world. So it's quite an exciting time uh, growing the business into Asia, into the Middle East and uh, following our clients around. Reflecting on that journey now, what were the biggest challenges that you encountered in growing the business? I mean, it's an obvious one of people. It's always hard to get people who can uh, can help uh, you know, at the right stage for your business is at. But I think, um, so beyond the people, uh, it was that change management within companies was, was the next biggest thing. So often people go, yeah, that makes sense. We can see how that would help us. But then they had to go through this change management process internally. So it wasn't just selling the software, how that would change their project. It was actually selling how we as a company could also support them in that change management process. And that was quite, uh, quite tough in certain markets. Um, we often found it was easier to sell away from head office, so sell to a project somewhere remotely. So Bechtel, as an example, ended up being a great customer of ours. Very hard to sell to Bechtel in the US, which was home base for them. Much easier to sell to them, ironically, in the Middle East or South, yeah. South America. and Just get away from head office, get to a, where a project was really struggling, and then we could go in and help them start to put the runs on the board in terms of how we were delivering for, those, for that company, and then we could expand through their project. So a classic kind of land and expand approach get a couple of projects going and then roll through more projects after that. Uh, but yeah, people change. Um, I think 
Yeah, funding wasn't, uh, I mean, whenever you raise funds, I mean, these days it's so much easier. Um, being on the other side of the table, <laughs> investing, it uh, it's, uh, certainly seems a lot easier than it was when we were raising funds, but that would come up every year or two or every couple of years, and that was obviously challenging at the time to bring the funds in that we needed uh, into the business. On top of the people theme, I understand that Aconex had a unique culture that was driven basically from the top down. Talk to me about how you went about implementing that culture throughout the business. It really it was an extension of how we wanted to work together. So uh, the early team, so Rob and myself, um, a few others, we, we, when we were about 15 or 20 people, I guess, we started saying, what are the values and how do we want to work together? And I guess it was all around certainly respect for people, but also giving people a chance to try things. Uh, we ex expected people to do things differently. We knew we'd all make mistakes. I mean, we were making mistakes. We were new to this. Our team was new to it, but we allowed people to make those mistakes. Uh, obviously not continue to make the same mistake multiple times, but you know, learning from those mistakes, moving on so and growing. And it was um, and a bit of a can-do attitude as well. I think the, the thing that was nice in those early years, uh, which we, we, I think we maintained pretty well through the rest of the journey, was um, a pretty low-key, relaxed culture, um, not much hierarchy in the business, uh, a lot of people that love travelling, uh, so quite a I mean, we hire backpackers, you know, as we're going to the Middle East, like we want people who are very happy to go to Saudi Arabia or to go to Oman and implement, implement a project. Um, but the culture was really important and we, once we had this culture, we then set about protecting it and uh, nurturing it. So really talking a lot about our culture, uh, we, we made it a point to, whenever we hired people, we, we spoke about our values, uh, the sort of culture we had in the business and tried to as much as possible align to that. And also, I mean, sometimes when we didn't get it wrong, which happens, um, we were pretty quick to move on it. So if, were, if we saw that somebody didn't quite fit um, culturally, we didn't really let that go. I mean, we, we had, we, we would move people on and we'd, we'd, we'd basically you know, align the people to the culture. And I think you have an enormous privilege um, as a founder to create the culture within your business. Uh, and so I think sometimes people don't quite see that they've got that you know, a lot of power, if you like, to create that culture. So we wanted to create a really great culture uh, but then protect that culture we'd already built. The business, as I mentioned, was sold to Oracle in 2017. What was the decision-making process that you went through to sell the business to Oracle v listing on, on the stock exchange or selling to private equity or, or just continuing the business as it was growing? So we'd already listed. So in a sense, we, that was partly um, the sale process. As a listed company, we were... You know, we had to act in the interest of shareholders. So, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I've said this publicly, I mean, personally, I wasn't looking to sell the business. I was very happy doing what I was doing. Uh, the business was growing well, uh, but we were a listed company in Oracle um, after, I guess, a couple of times we'd said no. Um, eventually, they put a price to us that we couldn't say no to, and we felt we had an obligation to our shareholders to act in their interest. Um, and, well, not just felt, I guess you do as a public company, whether you like it or not, you have that obligation. But we also thought, you know, we wanted to make sure that shareholders were comfortable with the decision we'd made. Uh, and... Look, it was sort of a bit a bittersweet um, process in some respects. It was obviously great for shareholders uh, and great for us as shareholders. We were, of course, shareholders as well. Uh, but personally, you know, I enjoyed what I was doing, enjoyed running the business and would have happily kept doing that. But it has now given, given me the opportunity to take what I've learned and bring that into other businesses. And also a lot of our, our executive team has moved on to do other things. So where Aconex came to an end as a standalone company is now part of Oracle. On the back of that, uh, those skills that were built up building Aconex have now been taken into other Australian companies and hopefully they're, they're generating similar or you know, growth and you know, uh, that, that expertise has been able to help those other companies grow as well. So once you did sell the business in 2017, what came next? What were your sort of immediate term priorities? 
Uh, firstly, making sure it was integrated. So there was a period of handing over to, to Oracle and making sure that for our staff, uh, for our product, uh, that that all was taken across into Oracle. Uh, so after doing that, for I mean, my role disappeared, so there's always a, an understanding that, that I wouldn't be there forever, that it was a matter of, of bringing the business across. Uh, and then it was, started, as I said before, starting to take some of those skills I'd learnt and, um, and put them back into other businesses in the Australian you know, technology sector. Let's explore Sanyal Ventures in, in greater detail. Walk us through the firm in terms of who's involved. I mean, it's pretty small. It's really just myself and an investment team. Um, obviously, I... You know, work across business I've invested in, so that takes up a bit of my time. Um, but then it's being able to do things like what we're doing with Second Quarter Ventures. Um, so that's been a really great uh, extension of sort of my investing through Sanyal. Um, you know, second quarter is really hitting a niche in the market which hadn't been serviced before, which is uh, providing liquidity or secondary liquidity to technology companies. So often along the way, and we found this with Aconex, you have staff or early investors who have equity in the business but there's no liquidity until you're listed. There's really no liquidity. Um, you can't sell that stock easily. And we found along the Aconex journey, um, that was incredibly valuable to have. In our case, we had a couple of our shareholders who were able to provide a bit of liquidity to our staff. So if a staff member had a, you know, had a few tens of thousands of dollars worth of shares or more, whatever it was, um, and they wanted to be able to sell some of those shares, they provided that facility and bought them bought them from the, those people directly. So we saw that was really valuable for us in building Aconex and, in, um, and putting value on the equity that people have in the business. And so we wanted to provide that more broadly into the market. So alongside my own investing, and we were investing in a lot of these businesses that had secondary liquidity needs over time, and so we thought, well, we'll set up a fund that does that as a dedicated fund within the market. Um, which has had yeah great response, uh, it's been fantastic. Across the various roles that you hold at the moment, you're no doubt speaking to a lot of company founders, startup companies, and that sort of thing. What 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 are the major issues that you're hearing and seeing about on the ground? A big one at the moment, and we sort of touched on it earlier, is just hiring, uh, getting the, the talent into Australia, uh, particularly in tech. It's it was hard pre-pandemic, uh, but with no virtually no immigration, um, there's Australia just doesn't produce enough technology resources for the companies we have here today. So it's, uh, and they'll only get, they'll only increase. So uh, that's a real challenge. Um, I think there's always the, the you know, getting strategy right. So so the strategy comes before your operational, ex, you know, your operational execution and uh, just getting that strategy right. Because if you get it wrong and you head down the wrong path, um, it's very hard to, to turn that around. A third issue that often comes up is uh, not always that founders know they need help on it, but they certainly will see it over time, but just building that sales engine. So it's one thing to have a great product, but you've got to be able to get out and sell it. And whether that's uh, online, whether it's through inside sales, whether it's through people out carrying a bag, knocking on doors, um, whatever it is, you've got to sell a product. To do. You know, there's very few products that just sell themselves. And so getting into that, you know, accepting that a product, you can have a great product, but you need a great sales and marketing engine to have a truly successful business. My final question, what does the next chapter look like for Lee Jasper? For me, well, uh, there's a, I mean, continue to invest in the sector. I mean, I, I love uh, technology and, yeah, the impact it's having on society. So there'll be, you know, continued investment in, in, into uh, into the sector, obviously supporting the companies I've invested in. So that's that's something I really enjoy, helping teams build, build businesses. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm a business builder. That's what I've enjoyed most of all uh, over my career is putting the pieces together to build a business. And, you know, some people like building cars or motorbikes or houses or whatever it is, for me, it's built putting the pieces together to build a business. So um, whether that's directly doing it myself or helping others build businesses, um, that's what 
you know, gets me excited and gets me up out of bed every morning and uh, sort of is something that I find quite, um, yeah, just, just a lot of fun and it's quite motivating to be able to get up and help, help companies, help founders build great companies. Lee Jasper, pleasure speaking with you and look forward to seeing what the next 12 months and the next 10 years look like. Great, thanks Rob, great to be here.